I am so grateful for the truth that we're talking about right now. I, I just kind of feel like I've been overcome lately, not been living as an overcomer. That's not your fault in any way. I know that. But I am grateful to reflect upon the truth of eternity that Jesus stands as the great victor. And that those who are in Christ stand in his victory as well. And that through that power, we can model the life of Christ and be overcomers ourselves. God, help us, help me, God, to do that. Help me to do that. Thank you that I can come and ask. I just was struck with the picture in my mind this morning of a story that Jesus told. Two men come to the temple to pray. One man boldly goes right to the front and in his piety and arrogance focus on self looks up to the Father and says Father I thank you that I'm not like all of these other sinners here and then there's a man standing in the back of the church Jesus said in the back of the temple not even counting himself worthy to approach standing at a distance with one cry on his lips God be merciful to me a sinner I, God I feel like that second man I need your mercy this morning I'm glad that it's new today glad that it's always new I stand here Lord in recognition of my sin recognition of my weakness painfully so and yet I'm just holding on to the promise that you not only overcame but you make us overcomers that you not only have the resurrection power within you but you give that resurrection power to us in that right now out of my brokenness even as an unworthy vessel that your desire is to fill it for your glory and to pour out your truth, your life-giving, life-changing truth through this broken vessel. And so I am asking you to do that for the sake of who you are, who your word is, for your glory and for the, these dear people here this morning. Would you pour your power, your presence through my brokenness into their lives and give them what they need. I know that I don't have it, but I know that you do. Trusting you to do that. Thanking you for it. Believing that it'll happen in Christ's name. I pray, amen. You be seated. Well, it's good to be back with you this morning after being in Africa for a couple of weeks. 
I'll just quickly tell you that uh, trip there, um, short-term missions trip there, uh, went well. Went down to do some leadership training and also assess the ministry there that we've been involved in. We've had a little contact over the past few years, and so just trying to get on site and get some insight about what was going on there, and was very pleased and and uh, I just believe God confirmed. Uh, at least to me, our ongoing involvement there. But I'll bring you greetings from the Cornerstone Malawi and the, the 13 different pastors that I was working with there and their leaders. I'll tell you some more about that in a few weeks. We're trying to prepare a video, um, just a short little clip there that'll help actually, actually allow the main pastor there to bring a greeting to this church, but we'll have that in a, available in a week or two. So I'll talk more about that then. I want to give you two quick uh, announcements here this morning before we uh, open up the Word of God here. Uh, the first one is, let me just start with asking this question. How many of you in here, and see your show of hands, how many of you in here at one time were a child? Okay, good. You're listening. <laughs> how many of you are? Yeah, no, I'm not going to ask that. At some point, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've come to faith in Christ, at some point in your life, somebody came alongside your life and spoke the truth to you or helped you grow and mature in the truth or is continuing to do that. Many of you, that probably took place when you were a child. We have 200 or some kids that attend this church every Sunday, every weekend. Kids are, I got four of my own. Oh, well, one of them is actually grown. Is he in here this morning? He's going to be like getting his own place next week. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, kids are just incredible. They are. It's like sponges. Just uh, gather new information and and in a home of any semblance of health, even in homes that have seen homes that unhealthy, that children are just looking to learn from their parents and those that they respect over them. And so we have this incredible opportunity here to impress upon the lives, the hearts, the minds of our children, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the potential in 200 people. Radically sold out. That we can help point that direction toward Christ and help them take steps to walk in obedience and conformity to the character of Christ in increasing measure. Jesus changes the world with 12, right? So here's what happens, kind of this phenomenon. I, I, I'm aware that it in some degree is true, I think, across the country, but it is, it is heightened in the extreme in Alaska that when summer comes, that good body of workers in the children's ministry, and it takes... To work with 200 kids on a weekend, it takes a lot of people. 
they are excited and about getting out and enjoying God's creation. I don't fault them for that at all. I mean, after this, after this winter, I could not believe it yesterday when I was trying to move all day long. It snowed, and I just thought, what is God trying to say to me here? So I understand wanting to be out in the sunshine, but we still have those kids that we need to minister to. And so I'm asking you, to consider engaging in that ministry, particularly over the summer if you're not currently doing that. Shane, our children's pastor, needs a lot of help. And I don't want, I don't want that kind of a twisting of the arm and compulsion. I want you to see it for the great potential that it is. You get to invest in little immortals, right? In little immortals for the sake of the kingdom. And so if you will, after the service, out in the foyer there, there's a, there's a welcome center, and Shane will be back there, and he has spots that are basically almost the whole three months of the summer is open, needing to be filled, and I'd encourage you to go and plug in, find where you can plug in, uh, at least for three or four weeks out of the summer, help us out here being good stewards of that responsibility of the hearts and minds of those kids. Now let me give you a quick teaser about two weeks from today. We have been praying as an elder board, discussing. Uh, I'm not claiming to be a prophet here, and nor would any of our elders get up here and claim that, that we had a prophetic word about the future, but just with some of the trends that have been happening. Well, like the announcement this morning, the men of Issachar understood the times and knew what to do. We're trying to understand that as elders for the life of this church and asking God to give us insight uh, into the future about how we can help the church prepare for uncertain times in the future. And so what I'm going to do in two weeks on the 19th is I'm just going to preach a message that is going to just communicate the principle, uh, like the Issachar principle or the principle of being watchmen on the wall who are charged by God to look and see what's coming and sound the clear call to the best of their abilities. And so I want to I wanna just do that and open the Word of God to you in two weeks and, and talk about that. And then what we want to do as an elder board is we want to invite you to come back the evening of the 19th, Sunday evening, uh, late afternoon, and we'll meet probably in the fireside room there um, or in here if enough people return. And we just want to have an informational meeting where we give you what we believe are some practical things that you can do to prepare yourself uh, as a family uh, just to be in a place uh, financially or to get into a place financially where uh, you can make it through uh, what might be some difficult times. And so we just want to try to give you some pragmatic steps that, that would help you, we believe, uh, just be prepared for whatever um, comes if times get tough and you, our economy uh, hits some harder times uh, that we can help you get prepared to walk through that. Okay, this morning. I'm not going to preach to you from Romans. been gone for a few weeks and, and due to what's coming up here in a couple weeks, I won't be able to be on Romans on the 19th. And so what I thought I'd do is just take a couple of Sundays here, just kind of standalone messages, 
Um, I want to just preach this week and next week about the subject of the Word of God. What I want to do is I want to preach from the Word of God to you about the Word of God. I'm going to begin with this statement, statement of deep conviction uh, that I hold in my own heart, try to build my life upon. I believe that what we have, if you've got your Bible, why don't you just do this, just hold it up for a second. I believe that what we hold in our hands when we hold the Word of God in our hands is that we hold in our hands a book that is inspired by God. Let me say that again. A book that is inspired. Not a book that just was inspired when it was written a few thousand years ago over a span of about 1,500 years, but a book that is today inspired. Okay, you can put your Bibles down. Meaning this, that I believe that what we have here is the very words of God brought about by God's superintending over the lives of the authors that wrote down those original manuscripts those letters in such a way that the truth of God came through their personality, but they were so guided by the Spirit of God that what was written was absolutely perfect and without error, that it truly was divine. It was the very words of God. That's what is meant by the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. I hold that deeply in my heart. So what I want to do is I just want to build on that now and talk to you about the Word of God and begin by saying how we should approach the Word. We should approach the Word, specifically how believers should approach the Word. That it kind of set the stage. The Word of God, the written Word of God, is ultimately about the living Word of God. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. That means God in the flesh of man. He is the living word. Uh, The apostle John wrote in his gospel, in the beginning was the word, the logos, capital W in your Bibles, the logos in the Greek. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the logos. He is the living word of God. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth of God. And what we have in the written word is ultimately and preeminently about the living word. So that when you study your Bible, when you read your Bible, you 
it will help you greatly to understand that the written word of God is directly connected to, intricately entwined with the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it is the living Christ, that overcomer, that was dead and buried and is alive again forevermore. It is that living Lord Jesus Christ that gives life also to the written word. In fact, they cannot be separated. And it would be good as a basis of understanding for your scriptural study to keep that at the forefront of your minds. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the greatest preachers of history, said this, Behold, this day the everlasting gospel has Christ within it. He rides in it as a chariot. Isn't that a great word picture? Jesus is in the word, riding that truth from the opening chapter in Genesis 1 to the closing chapter of Revelation. He is the essential truth of the Word of God. In fact, if you leave out Christ as the substitute, if you leave out the atoning work of Christ and the death of Christ and the victory that he's won from this gospel right here, you strip it of all of its power, of its very nature. A bloodless gospel is a lifeless gospel. This word written is about the word living, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say that to say this. I say it for my own heart. I say it uh, for my own accountability, but I mean it as a strong encouragement, admonition, uh, warning for you. That what should happen, here's the emphatic point that I'm trying to make, that when the word of God is preached, whenever the word of God is preached, there is a tremendous responsibility in the preaching of that word. There is a high calling in the preaching of that word, that that word that is preached should be about the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus should be walking through the pages of the word. The chief calling of every preacher, believe this, the chief calling of every preacher is for Christ to control the preacher's mind, for Christ to enthrone the preacher's heart, for Christ to ignite the preacher's lips. The paramount need for every sermon is for Jesus to walk among the words. So I, I encourage you when you listen to a sermon, whether it be in this church, from my lips or somebody else's, whether it be in any church that you attend, that you see of Jesus Christ, the good, the great, and the chief shepherd is the one that is leading and feeding and protecting and caring and admonishing and correcting through his word because 
The written word is about the living word. Do not ever separate that. It is. I want to say this. You know, I, obviously, I spend most of my Sundays here. I just hear comments from those that that attend occasionally. Statements that are made that just give me great pause about what they have heard at other locations. I I have so many great preacher friends. There's a lot of great churches in this town. But if we attend the service and you listen to the preached word and if the response at the end of that sermon is similar to the response that the, the woman gave when she came to the tomb of Jesus and she said, Sir, they have taken the Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. If it is your response at the end of a sermon and you're saying, they have laid away the Lord behind the tomb and locked him up and kept him hidden. Then they've missed the point of the word because the written word is about the living word. So what I want to do this morning, I'm going to take two Sundays here. All I want to do this morning is I want to talk to you about the character of the Word. I just want to give you three truths about the character of the Word. Here's the first one. And all of, this list could be extensive. I'm just going to grab three items here, three truths about the character of the Word. Of the, of the Word of God that are geared to show you, to validate, to confirm the reality that the words that you hold in the Bible are not just a set of dots on a white page, that they are nothing other than the authoritative, powerful, living words of God. First of all, the character of the Word it is uniform. The word is uniform. One of the great miracles of the word, great testimony to its divine origin is this, that it has a continuity of the whole and every one of its constituent parts are complementary. Continuity of the whole and every one of its constituent parts, the pieces of the word are complementary to one another, not in conflict. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a miracle when you understand what the word of God is. When you understand that what you hold in the word of God is a word that was written 
over 1,500, 2,000 years. A word that was written by several dozen authors. And those authors were not all brought up uh, through the same lineage in the same country in the same environment. Those authors were radically different. There was kings and paupers. There was statesmen and prophets. There were fishermen and tax collectors. This word was written in at least four different languages. The authors who wrote this, these words over a long period of time from a wide variety of emotional situations. Some writing on the heights of joy, others writing on the, in the depths of despair. And yet, when you bring them all together, there is overall continuity and this at the very individual level, harmony between all of the individual. It's, it's a mirror. It is a stupendous. It is otherworldly is what it is. It is divine. It is absolutely divine. The only way that can be explained. Folks, who's reading any other books now on a regular basis that are 2,000 years old? I mean, who's doing that? They're lucky to make it five years now and they're outdated. But this was written by the eternal word of God. You see, the God who is eternal is the God who is omniscient, meaning he's the God who knows the end from the beginning and every part along the way. And he knows all of that at every moment in every time so that the words that he wrote could directly fit and connect to a culture and a people and at the same time be eternal so that they are timeless and apply to all people of all times. That's what we have in the word of God. It's a miracle. I just consider this illustration to drive this point home that I'm making here about the continuity and the unity of all the constituent parts. Let's say you're building a massive edifice, or somebody is. I mean, it is, it is a castle of massive proportion. And the stones for this castle are gathered from all points of the globe, from quarries on every continent on the planet. I mean, from Africa and Australia and Antarctica and the Americas and Europe. And uh, these stones are cut in their local quarries, shaped to fit into their place in this massive temple, this edifice, this castle, and then they're shipped 
from all over the world and arrive at the building site. And as they are put together one by one, every single stone perfectly fits where it's supposed to be placed. I mean perfectly. Not almost, but perfectly. So that the stones are so tight together that not even air can pass between the seams. That it rises from its foundation, its walls reach up toward the heavens, and then it transitions into the domes and the peaks, and yet in all of its shape, there is perfection. There's not one stone missing when it's done. Not one stone. And listen, not one stone had to be altered on site. Not even modified with chipping a little bitty edge away. They were perfectly cut at the home quarries. Now, if that was, you know, that's obviously a radical impossibility. But if that were true, I'm pretty convinced that you and I would reach a conclusion of this. There is a genius designer and architect behind this thing. Absolute genius. And the builder on site is a genius. Folks, that illustration does not compare to the complexities that it would take to get this word written over all those centuries by all those different people on a wide variety of different subject matters to be perfect in conformity and unity in all of its individual constituent parts. You couldn't find two authors coming up in the same household in the same time with the same parents writing on the same subject that would agree. You see, the nature of the word in its uniformity is just nothing short of a divine act of God. That is the only way that it has remained intact and continues to grow in its impact from when it was first, the first word was penned until the day and will continue into the future. Character of the word of God of the Bible is that it is a uniform word. Here's the second character I want to point out to you of the word of God or of the Bible. The Bible is alive. The Bible is alive. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and a marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That says a lot of stuff that we don't have time to unpack this morning, but just look at the opening phrase there. The word of God is living and active, says the writer of Hebrews. It is alive, and it's living in a in vitality, it's acting, it's doing something. And what is the Word of God doing? The Word of God is alive, and it is a Word that imparts life. That's the only book on the planet that does that. 
It imparts life. It is a living book that imparts life where there is death. Only a word from the living God could do that. It is a word that is alive. It moves. It judges the heart. It convicts and convinces the mind. It calms the spirit. It directs the feet. It inspires the tongue. It's alive. It's active. It's vital. Solomon, arguably the second wisest man of history, said this, referring to the Word of God in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 22. When you walk, they, the words of God, will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. Do you see the personification there? He is painting a picture of something that is alive. He's giving it a personality. He's giving it an activity, a vitality of life. The Word of God leads. The Word of God watches over. The Word of God talks to you. These are not dots on a page. Says the wisest man other than Christ. They are alive. And they're doing something. They're accomplishing their purposes. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, from the 1800s said, we may outgrow our pastors and teachers, but we will never outgrow our apostles and prophets. We will not. They will speak the word of God to you in this book that will be for your lifelong, life-giving, enhancing, growing benefit. So the word of God is alive. The word of God is a uniform word. The word of God is a living word. Number three, the word of God is a powerful word. It's a powerful word. That's said there in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that not only is the Word of God living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's a powerful word. It's powerful, first of all, in the way it discerns. You see, the statement is, listen carefully again to the statement, that the Word of God pierces to the division of soul and of spirit. Let's think about that for a minute. What does that mean? The Word of God pierces to the division of soul and of spirit. It has been said that man has a soul. And, or woman has a soul, human, and that a Christian has the Spirit of God. And that the Word of God here is 
discerning, it's piercing even to the division of soul and of spirit. It is able to discern and identify and get to the difference between what is of human nature and what is of the spirit. What is of the natural realm and what is of the spiritual realm? What is the right and what is the wrong? The Word of God has the ability, the discerning, piercing ability to judge the things that are wrong and are right, to make the distinction between the two. There's nothing on the planet like the Word of God for doing that for helping us to understand what is right and what is wrong, what is of man and what is of God, what is of the human nature and what is of the Spirit. The Word of God has that power. Secondly, under power, the Word of God, the Word of God is unstoppable. Would you, would you say that with me? The, I'm going to say it and you repeat it. The Word of God is unstoppable. Yes, it is unstoppable. Let me just, let me just give you an example. I, I love some of these stories. I, I don't share them a lot. but You see, I'm convinced that the, the Word of God, the Bible sent by the Spirit of God. You know how powerful it is? It's omnipotent. It has all power. It has all power. It has all power even to transform the most obstinate heart and mind. Let me just process that for a second. How many of you in here, I don't, I don't want you to raise your hand, but it just raises your hand in your heart, Okay. How many of you in here know somebody, how many believers in here know somebody that is a loved one, a friend, that you so long would receive the grace of God and be saved, but in your mind they are absolutely hopeless. They are just, there is nothing that is ever going to turn them into the most obstinate person against the truth of God and the way of Christ. If you have someone like that, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. The Word of God is powerful. It is so radically, radically powerful. It can come to the most ardent antagonist, like a man by the name of Saul, on his way to imprison and kill those who were followers of Jesus until he came into contact with the Lord and the word of the Lord and became the most prolific author of Scripture. George Whitfield, does that name ring a bell to anybody? George Whitfield, one of the great preachers of history, on this continent that man God used to help uh, fan the flames of revival to see thousands upon thousands come to the Lord. 
phenomenal tool in the hands of the Spirit of God as a preacher. There was a man by the name of Mr. Thorpe that lived in Whitfield's day. And Mr. Thorpe was an antagonist to the gospel. He was a rebel, an aggressive rebel. He was a, he was a part of a group called the Hellfire Club. And his posture toward the Word of God was to ridicule it. His posture toward George Whitfield, when he heard about his preaching, was to ridicule. And so he went to one of his meetings, one of his services, so that he could listen to the preaching of George Whitfield and use it as ammunition to which he then could go back to his hellfire club and he could ridicule and mock this great preacher, George Whitfield. And so he did. He went to the meeting and he dutifully listened to the sermon and he went to the club and he stood up in the club with his heart toward ridicule and he, in a very adept way, re-preached George Whitfield's sermon. I mean, he was modeling and mocking the tone and the demeanor and he accurately communicated the message as he was doing that in open mockery and ridicule and then in the middle of the message he saved himself. I'm not kidding. As he was preaching the gospel truth that he had heard, as he was saying it with his own mouth, the word of God was unleashed in its power, in his own heart. And he stopped his mockery and his ridicule. And he sat down in brokenness and he confessed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as the true gospel. And he ended his life of ridicule and mockery and the Hellfire Club shut its doors to open no more. The word of God is powerful. It is out of this world powerful because it is from the omnipotent God. The Word of God has the power not only to turn the sinner, but it has the power in the saved to slay sin. We talked about this for six weeks and how we need to be killing the sin within, and how the Word of God is the one weapon in our arsenal, one offensive weapon in our arsenal to slay the sin. Spurgeon said, Oh, to be sacrificed to God and His Word to be the sacrificial knife. The Word of God is powerful. Secondly, the Word of God is unstoppable. I want you to say that with me. Ready, go. The Word of God is unstoppable. 
stop it. It's not only undefeatable, it is unstoppable. There have been, yeah, picture it like this. There have been men down through history, men of great notoriety, men of great power, men of great genius and intellect, men of almost unlimited resources who have picked up their hammers and wielded them feverishly in an attempt to demolish the Word of God. And they have swung their hammers against the anvil of God's Word. And they have swung their hammers against the anvil of God's Word. Almost tirelessly, relentlessly, fueled by hate and rebellion toward Christ and His truth. Let me give you just a few names. I mean, this list is so long. And it's, it's the subject matter. You can look it up yourself, look them up yourself of history, of recorded history. Celsus used his brilliant genius. Lucian fi- fired his arrows of ridicule. Voltaire wielded his mighty pen. Do you, you heard of Voltaire? Did you ever study Voltaire? He's a French writer. The 1700s. He was one of the most famous men of that era. Incredibly influential in his writings. He wrote prolifically. And one of the things that had his keenest eye and most ardent attack was Christ and his word. He said of Christ... Curse the wretch. Curse the wretch. He said, with my own hand, I will before I die totally dismantle and defeat the edifice that it has taken 12 apostles to build. And he put his great influence and genius toward that goal. He was a man of great resources. Had a very large estate 50 years after his death. A publishing company bought his estate. And that makes sense. He was a writer, right? He he used the pen as his mighty weapon. And so a publishing company bought his estate. Oh, and by the way, it was a Bible publishing society that his estate on his own printing presses from which he sought to defeat Christianity and proclaimed that he would wipe out its influence in his own life became a publisher of the Word of God with Bibles stacked from floor to ceiling. The Word of God is unstoppable. How about Diocletian? 
Remember the edicts of Diocletian, the Roman emperor? Rome had been in its glory days and had been through about a 200-year period period of slight decline, and Diocletian came into power and said, I'm going to return Rome to its former glory. Rome was a place that worshipped many, many pagan gods, and the priests began to tell Diocletian as he was seeking to return Rome to its former glory that the problem, Diocletian, is that there, are, there is this group of people within your kingdom that do not sacrifice to the gods. He's talking about the Christians. And so what Diocletian did is that he wrote his first edict in like two It's either 287, 297. And in that, everyone that had any employee in any way with the state, and that would have been the majority of the population, that they had to burn incense to the gods. It's an attack against Christianity. And then from there, it just increased in the intensity of the persecution against believers to the point about five years later where if you were found with the word of God, it was an instant death sentence. That he set himself and all of the mighty power and resources of Rome to wipe out the word of God from the hands of man. After Diocletian, his succeeding ruler was a man by the name of Constantine. You know what he did? He said, Christianity is now the religion of all of Rome. And he promoted it across the country. You see, the word of God is unstoppable. More recent, about the bonfires of Hitler, setting fire to the pages of Scripture to wipe it out. How about even more recently, over the last, intensely over the last 30, 40 years, within the halls of higher learning in our country, there has arisen an army calls themselves the higher critics, the intellectuals who have set out aggressively to defeat the Word of God by providing, they say, empirical evidence that the Word of God is faulty, cannot be relied upon. And so they spin their webs, they swing their hammers against the anvil of the Word of God, like Hitler and Voltaire and Diocletian. And they come up with the theory and they say, see right here, we have empirical evidence that proves that the Word of God is not trustworthy. There was clearly no writing at the time of Moses that just so proves that Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. It's ludicrous. Everybody that has any intelligence and has studied it all knows that. And I mean, just the, the theories just spun like that one after another. 
And many of those were presented in very convincing ways in the Christian world held its breath saying, what do we say? What do we do? And then the spade of the archaeologist turns over a shovel full of dirt and a discovery is made that is empirical evidence that validates the Word of God. Folks, that story right there has happened so many times in the last 40 or 50 years that every time a theory is spun by the higher critics, there's a period of time that it doesn't look good for the validity of Scripture, and then somebody on the backside of the desert finds something that is in exact agreement to the written Word of God, and all the theories have to be thrown out. That has just been a repeated pattern of recent history. Why? Because the Word of God is unstoppable. And why is it unstoppable? Because it was penned by the divine, omniscient, omnipotent God of the universe. It is true in its overall theme and true in every individual part. The grass, 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, the grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Just three aspects of the character of the word of God. It is a uniform word, it is a living word, and it is a powerful word. We'll continue next week in looking at the authority of the Word of God. But we're going to close now. We're going to close by taking the Lord's Supper, taking communion. Now, this might seem out of place, but really it is directly in line with what we have been talking about. Here's why. Because what is the written Word about? Can you go back to the beginning? of this sermon, what is the written word about? Who is the written word about? It is about the living word. It is about Jesus Christ, the living word. That what gives life to this word is the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the victory of Jesus Christ. That without that, this word is not alive. But he is the all-conquering one and him and his word are intricately entwined so that as he lives, this lives. And so what we're going to do as we close here is we are going to remember the living word and his willing substitutionary atoning death for our sin. The broken bread that we take is a representation that Jesus' body was broken. The juice that we take is a representation of Jesus' blood that was spilled. And without the spilling of blood, there's no remission of sins, the Bible says. So we're going to remember the sacrifice that was paid. Ushers are going to come, begin to pass that after I pray. You just receive those elements as they come by. Reflect as we sing upon Christ and His sacrifice. Lord Jesus,
We're grateful, God. Grateful for your humiliation, your condensation to come down to us. Become one of us, become a servant of us so that you could be sacrificed for us. In fact, it's even more astounding than that. Scripture teaches us that you accomplished your own death. You knew precisely what would bring about your crucifixion and you orchestrated the events in your interaction with people so that when the time was right, you did what would be needed so that those who hated you would cry out and demand your death. That on the cross you willingly gave up your spirit, it says. Thank you for your death, your sacrifice for us. Thank you for the word that teaches us about that. Lord, as we have reflected upon the reality of what we have in the Bible, I pray that we would not fall into the great error of letting the Bible adorn our desks and our coffee tables and our nightstands instead of us adorning the gospel in our hearts. Help us to be students of the word and livers of the word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.